NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Nutzi, Michael Kimball, and Kyle Stein. And today we're joined by a special guest, the one and only Micah Wimmer, a voracious reader, an impressive writer, an Akron, Ohio native, and a fellow Steph Curry fan. It's nice to have an ally on the pod for a change. You can... <laughs> You can find Micah's musings on the NBA, his music his music criticism and book reviews at Fansided, Real GM, and The Shocker. We're in week three of the 2020-2021 NBA season, and as is so often the case in our world of immediate gratification and reckless speculation, the narratives are shifting rapidly from game to game, or even possession by possession. Before we get into all the happenings around the league, like Steph Curry's 62-point game, LaMelo Ball's flashes becoming more frequent, and the Philadelphia 76ers quietly getting off to a strong start, I wanted to ask our guest about his love of books and great writing, a love that we also share. Uh, so, Micah, you know, take us through your journey to becoming an NBA Twitter voice, uh, a writer of basketball things, basketball musings, um, and all-around good content. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Um and it's, it's not really a journey that was really systematized in any sort of way. It just kind of happened in ways that I kind of even struggled to, to remember. I, I kind of just started tweeting about basketball a lot, would get added to like some group chats of other writers and just kind of worked my way up that proverbial food chain of sorts, you know, doing writing for free. And uh, eventually I, I pitched the piece over to uh, Ian at Fansided. Uh, on the recommendation of uh, some some friends of mine. And that led into a more stable gig there. And I've kind of just branched out um, from fan side to contribute to a few other sites and just trying to, you know, work at it and add more and more places to, uh, to the resume and, and see what happens next. Yeah, that's awesome. I was in preparation for the pod. I was reading a number of your articles and I was impressed, as I said, with the the frequency and the quality of the writing. Um, and I think, um, I don't know how you all feel about this, but I mean, you know, we're all writers on this on this pod. And, you know, I grew up playing baseball and I think a large reason for my shift and my sort of deep-seated fandom for the NBA now is has to do with writing and has to do with like NBA Twitter. Um, it just seemed like a space of freedom, of creativity, of you know just weirdness. Uh, whereas like these sort of internet spaces, particularly like baseball Twitter, is is precisely not that. So I think I attribute much of my fandom and my interest today and my sort of close following of the league just to the to the writing. You know, I I love great writing and I love basketball and I love sports and so you know the the basketball internet was sort of like heaven for me um so yeah I want to kick it to you know all of us here uh just talking about favorite basketball writers Micah maybe you can start us off with who are some of your favorite basketball writers writing today or maybe uh over the course of history I mean there's obviously a ton of people whose work I love um all, all my colleagues at Real GM and Fanside I feel truly honored to share a byline alongside all of them but um the two writers working today that stand out the most for me who i just want to read everything they do even though it often just fills me with insecurity and uh, rage that i can't quite pull it off myself as frequently are uh, colin mcgallan at uh, real gm and katie heindel who uh, has her basketball feelings substack and also writes a lot at dime um both of them write in ways that are just so distinctly their own. Um, Colin, he almost feels like a cultural critic more than a basketball writer. He's focusing on myths, on narratives. He brings a lot of, he brings more literature and highbrow references into it, into his work than anyone else I've read, but in a way that's organic. It never feels like he's just trying to show off that he knows who William Gaddis is or something. It's, it's absolutely brilliant work. Um, and Katie Heindel really highlights the, I mean, obviously judging by the title of her newsletter, the, the emotions of it, the, that one feels as fans, that one feels watching it, the rise and fall of, um, of one's feelings with a missed shot, with one's team doing well, why one may love a player and then come not to. And to me, that seems to strike closer to the heart of why I watch basketball and why I care about it. Because um, I think there are a lot of great writers out there who are doing brilliant statistical work but I don't enjoy and I'm glad it exists I like seeing it but it's not as fun to read most of the times these two are the best I think on a pure writing level 
Yeah, yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. Like you you go to some people for their sort of their analysis or their statistics, but not necessarily for their pros. Um, Michael, you would you like to give us your favorite basketball writers? I, I mean, I think um, somebody I like to look at and read, Kirk um, Goldberry fits into the description you just said like the, the statistical breakdowns the images it's really great not the greatest pro stylist in the world mm-hmm. um but um one of my favorites still and i'm sure this is a basic pick on some level is hollinger on the athletic like i just find his writing really incisive about certain players and i find him to be um often very right about who breaks out, gets better, who doesn't, who's on a downward trend, uh, those sorts of things. He's right a remarkable amount of the time, even though he's gotten some things um, very wrong <laughs> in, the, in the past, like uh, the Chandler Parsons contract um, back in the day. Um, so those, but maybe my my favorite basketball writers, um, I only, have only written essays on basketball. One is the Dave Hickey essay that we've talked about on here before, the heresy of the zone defense. And I heard shades of that, Jalen, and, and um, your description of why you became involved with basketball writing. It, it seemed to fit the argument of, of the NBA being liberating, baseball being less so. Um, yeah. So I was sort of curious, but, and then one of my favorite essays and it, it takes its form in a way, I think from the Dave Hickey essay, Heresy of the Zone Defense, but it's Hanifa Durakib from his collection, They Can't Kill Us Until I Kill Us. And it's the essay, um, it has a wonderful title. It rained in Ohio on the night Allen Iverson hit Michael Jordan with a crossover. And it's a beautiful essay. One, one of the few pieces of writing where I get truly, truly jealous about the way it's written, the subject matter, how he's done it. And uh, I, I can't think of a way to do better than Hanifa Durakib does in that essay. So th- those are some of my favorites with basketball. Yeah, I mean, all, b- both of those essays are just, they're just extremely impressive. And it's interesting that you mention uh, Colin McGowan at Real GM, Micah, because he's actually written about the Dave Hickey essay. We've referenced the Dave Hickey essay, The Heresy of Zone Defense, a number of times on this podcast. And and Colin actually kind of wrote a review of that. And I think they're they're of, of a piece. They're in the same spirit of like cultural criticism or sort of trying to bring sort of the outside world of life into the, the space of basketball and, and demonstrate how they connect and touch each other. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I love to see to see in writing. And, you know, Katie Heindel, as you said, is just extremely impressive. I just finished reading her uh, as she titled it 3000 word prose uh, poem about uh, Jimmy Butler uh, in Dime the other day. Uh, Kyle, is there anyone you wanted to mention? You know, I'd be lying <laughs> if I I'd be lying if I said I was doing a lot of basketball reading these days. I mean, after I get done doing all the reading and writing that I need to do for my work, I like to be on my feet. And so I've been mainly listening to podcasts and, um, you know, uh, Michael's right. I really like, um, you know, Hollinger and I like, you know, I like his podcast with Nate Duncan. I like, you know, the Dunked On podcast a lot too. And I feel like I get a lot out of those things, but it's obviously a very different, um, you know, it's a very different product that you're getting compared to what you guys are talking about. And um, as someone who's teaching a podcasting class this spring, um, it is in some ways um, regrettable because, you know, one of the things that a lot of my students come into a podcasting class and they, they have the kind of like basically what we're doing, you know, like where you sit around and you, you know, somewhat planned, but more or less unscripted, just um, kind of talk around subject matter. Um, But there's a whole wide world of podcasting out there that has very little to do with that. And it's a lot more creative and artistic um, and, you know, sort of beautifully composed in the way that you're talking about um, these basketball writers that you like. And it makes me think that there is a sort of like, there's a poetry of podcasting that uh, could be done in, you know, in the NBA sphere as well. Um, And, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of way that, you know, the, like the Hickey essay and and um, and these examples that Mike is giving, you know, that that kind of, um, you know, depth um, could be sort of like brought over to the audio form. Of course, it require a kind of different listening to do it. 
right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if you want to mention some of the maybe podcasts that you know of that do a little bit of that, but I mean, I think the the lead at the Athletic uh, from Wondery, I think they do a little bit of that. Their podcasts are pretty short, I think, ten to fifteen minutes, and I think they're pretty heavily edited, like cut together. They only take like bits and pieces of people's answers. They have music constantly in the background. I'm actually just listened to one of their like podcasts for in a like a year in review type style about uh, Mo Gabba, uh, the young uh, kid who passed away here in Baltimore uh, from cancer, but who had become sort of like a, a radio personality. Um, and I was like tearing up before I had to go to a meeting listening to it. But so I think they do a little bit of that. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to mention any other podcast that you know of that kind of give that sort yeah. of basketball feelings or world feelings uh, uh, for our audience. Yeah, you know, um, Love and Radio, I think, is a really great example of this. You know, a lot of those Radiotopia podcasts um, are, were really, like, made with, with this kind of, um, what, what I think of, like, as a, a, like a poetics of podcasting or poetics, poetics of sound. Um, so there's Love and Radio. There's The Memory Palace um, is another really great one that does that. I mean, there's our um, Baltimore Own, which I think is probably the closest to like a poetic style documentary, um, Out of the Blocks, um, made by Aaron Hankin oh, yeah. um, and Wendell Patrick. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, 99% yeah. Invisible. Does that, would that count? Yeah, actually, I mean, Roman Mars is, um, you know, he's the one who founded Radiotopia and Love and Radio is on Radiotopia. And I think the Memory Palace is as well. I mean, all of those are kind of in that vein. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really admire those podcasts. And obviously, the problem for us here who don't do this for a living is that they take uh, quite a bit of time and effort to to do that kind of like in-depth sort of like creating a space or a poetics for your podcasting but I also think like and I mean I don't really know if this needs to be argued or stated since uh, the you know the frequency and, and the sheer number of podcasts is probably a statement on its own but I think that like one thing that I love about the podcasting form is that you can kind of have a great product with like just a couple smart people sitting around talking about something that they're interested in and I think that's what drew me to podcast in the first place. Um, so before we move on, I think we're going to jump to like favorite sports books really quickly, and then we'll get into some more uh, pertinent questions about today's NBA. I can't let us leave a discussion about basketball writers um, without mentioning Zach Lowe and Mike Prada. So, you know, Zach Lowe, obviously, I don't know, depending on how hoity-toity you are, maybe you don't, you, you're not necessarily impressed with his prose, but I think he, he really walks a fine line between giving you in-depth analysis and also writing in a way that is like pretty pleasing and also really easy to follow. He does a great job of taking these like, uh, sort of complicated concepts and making them quite simple. Um, his breakdown of like the impact that Draymond Green has on defense and what Draymond Green is seeing based on a conversation with Draymond was really impressive. So yeah, I, I think he's sort of like the tried and true answer and everyone knows about him, but I do think that like, it's probably harder to do what he does than it actually seems. And then Mike Prada, who has started doing his sub stack, which is I think Prada's pictures um, after he left, um, wherever he was working before I'm blanking now but yeah I mean it's also again it's in the same mode uh of just like giving you in-depth analysis uh, oftentimes of individual players and their play style and how they succeed he had a great piece on Jimmy Butler and how he sort of burrowed underneath people to get to the basket in the playoffs um and how the Lakers were went about combating that so I definitely recommend him if you're someone who's trying to kind of learn more about the nuances of the game there's a uh, book I left off my list too. I just, and I, I would feel badly if I didn't mention it. Ross Gay Beholding is the book. It's a book length poem about Dr. J. He writes with exuberance and joy that is uh, undeniable. I, I don't even know what else to say about the book besides read it. It just came out a little while ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I love that thing. Definitely, definitely. Um, Micah, do you want to give us uh, some of your favorite sports books? Oh, always. Um, starting off, um, of course, I love like the classics when it comes to, to basketball stuff. I love breaks of the games, loose balls, the last shot. But um, some some personal choices I really love are um, the, the the two free Darko books. Um, I can, I can trace my NBA obsession back to when the macro phenomenal almanac came out in like 08 or 09. 
Um, I liked the NBA, but that really kind of unlocked it as an an obsession for me. And what was the, it there that the, did that? Um, what about the book or the book? Yeah, itself? yeah. The, what about the book sort of initiated that in you? Um, I'd never really, <clears throat> I'd never really read about basketball in this way that was so player focused that captured the distinctiveness of each player and the strange particularities that each one of them brought to the game, both in terms of like their their on court style and their personality. It, it almost felt like. Um, I, I was just able to see the game in a, in a new light after that, yeah. and and there's a there's a weirdness to the writing, to a, a uh, that that I just don't feel as as, as present anymore. Um, I think in the Fried Archeo history book, which I think is actually better than the the Almanac personally, there's there's a um, I forget which one they compared to to which, but I remember they compare Red Arbach and Red Holzman the old Celtics and Knicks coaches, to film directors Robert Altman and John Cassavetes. It's and that's just not the type of like I just love the strangeness, the offbeatness of that, and that it made sense too when I read it. Like, oh yeah, I, I can see that as a fan of, you know, both basketball and movies. Um so the Free Darko history was a big one for me. Um I also really like Robert Peterson's uh history of the early days of the game, from cages to jump shots, which kind of goes from the invention of basketball in 1891 to the invention of the shot clock in 54. And kind of captures those early years, all, all the minor leagues that kind of fizzled out before the BAA took hold and became the NBA by merging with the NBL. Um, it, it looks at all those minor leagues and all, all the different kind of developments and rules because the game that became the basketball that we knew, the basketball of the 1950s and to today, was absolutely not was, invent, was not what was invented in 1991. So it captures how and why those changes were made. And it's fascinating. Um, also, there are an absolute boatload of NBA memoirs and autobiographies, and most of them are forgettable, but fine. You know, it's kind of like the same story, like, here was my childhood, I worked really hard, I became a star, oh, it was crazy. But um, there's three that really stand out for me that I think are just absolutely great. The first is Bill Bradley's Life on the Run, which is about like a 14-day period in his uh, life as an NBA player, I think from the mid-70s with the mix. And Bradley was a very erudite guy. Like he ended up becoming a senator uh, after he retired. So it's predictable this would be more well-written. But there's there's a thoughtfulness that kind of in, that inquires about the, the, just the strangeness of being an NBA player, living this life on the road, being, play, being paid to play this game. That is really thoughtful and kind of highlights the, the strange reality of being a professional athlete that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the other two that I really adore are Bill Russell's Second Wind and Wilt Chamberlain's Wilt, just like any other seven-foot millionaire who lives next door, or something like that. I forget the precise subtitle. Mm -hmm. But um, they are both just absolutely brilliantly just, – they're just both brilliant books, but for entirely different reasons. Wilt is predictably the outlandish one, um, talking about various sexual escapades, trying to – correct every unfair myth that has been propagated about him in his career, rewriting everything about his history. And it's fascinating to just kind of see the inner life of this figure and just kind of see the way he's trying to fight against the way he's been portrayed. And it's, it's fascinating. It's very human. In wow. A that's way. really interesting. I didn't know that, like, I didn't know that Wilt was the sort of historical, archetype or precedent for Kevin Durant that sounds very much like <laughs> Kevin Durant and I am very fascinated with Kevin Durant's like uh, need to like rewrite the narrative and control the narrative or or just sort of reach out to people who have some influence on the narrative like and I don't know I, I I've said this in sort of notes that I've written down about Kevin Durant that like Kevin Durant has earned through his play and his money uh, being above like the fray of activity both on social media and in life and he seems almost to covet the mud he almost wants to roll around in the mud with the rest of us um, but he sort of forgets that he's he's not actually here and therefore people treat him differently um, so it's really interesting I, I immediately thought of KD when you were saying that yeah that makes sense I I, I think about half of what Wilt writes in the book is nonsense and half of it is probably a fair point 
but it's just a very guards down kind of book that is I, I find fascinating. And Bill Russell's Second Wind has been unjustly out of print for decades. Uh, thankfully, his first memoir, Go Up for Glory, was just reissued last year. Um, but Second Wind still needs to be. Um, both books are great, but Second Wind uh, has the advantage for me for being a later book. And I think at that point of his life, it was written, I think, in the late 70s. And it was co-written with Taylor Branch, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote the American The King Years trilogy that is also brilliant. Um, so Bill Russell, he's a very thoughtful guy. And it's, it's, it's a book that that's, has much about being Black in America as it is about being a world-class athlete. The, the anecdotes about growing up in Louisiana and being part of the Great Migration, moving to Oakland with his family, and um, are, are just wonderful, thoughtful things that are as great as any other civil rights classic memoir by a Black person you can think of. And then you throw in the stuff about, you know, him hanging out with the Celtics, the, the relationships he had with Red Arbach and the various players on the team, his thoughts about playing in Boston, and um, the reflections on kind of like what he sees almost as like as a worthless career and how what he really wanted to be was just a man who could live with himself and his quest to be that and to 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 fight for change and justice he, it can come off as bitter but i think it's just an impassioned plea to be treated like a human that that really comes across to me it is both reflective and um argumentative simultaneously I, I really think that Second Wind is just a classic, not only of like the sports autobiography genre, but of just memoir in general. Like it's it's an astonishing book that anyone who cares about race in America should read. I, I'm sad to say it was a book I haven't read. I just, and I looked it up on Amazon as you were talking. You can get a paperback version for a uh, mass paperback version for $768. Wow. <laughs> no, this is deeply, deeply out of print. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I forget how I got my hands on it, but I have a hardcover version from like when it came out in the 70s. And I remember I did spend not that, that much, might be worth a more. thousand bucks right now. So. <laughs> yeah. Not with all the underlines I've gotten in it at this point, but it's, it, it's, it's a great book. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, before we move on, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of friends of the pod, John Wilms, who we're going to have on next week, Alex Sickwig and Lewis Keen, all uh, three writers who I think are do a really good job. Um, I really enjoyed Alex's piece with uh, Johnny uh, Puing. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right on on. Um, waiters being in the finals and uh getting a finals ring that i really enjoyed that piece so shout out to those guys uh everyone come on the pod um but now let's move on to some current nba happenings in the early season so far so um micah in the lead up to this and the planning of the pod i i titled you a russell westbrook guy um so would you like to expound upon that uh uh your russell westbrookness or your your tendency to to root for West, russell westbrook or make a case for russell westbrook i mean i'm definitely not interested in making a case for russell westbrook in the year <laughs> of our lord 2021 but um i am always willing to talk about him and why i care about him so much yeah what fascinates you about westbrook Listen, I mean, I think part of it, kind of like I was saying with, with the basketball writing earlier, to, to go back to that, I care more about what players make me feel than what they achieve on the court a lot of the times. You know, like if you're, if you're an efficient scorer, cool, but if you don't do it in a way that moves me or engages me, I'm not going to care that much on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Russell Westbrook, no matter how successful or ill-advised his play has been at any given moment in his career, has always been a player that I can never turn my eyes away from. And he's someone I'm always rooting for to kind of get it together, even as I know deep down that it's not gonna change. There was a brief moment of hope from like January to March last year. He quit shooting threes, he started driving a ton more. He was finishing at the rim tremendously. He was still rebounding and passing. It was probably not the most overwhelming basketball he ever played in his career but it may have been the best yeah and yeah. but once this season is resumed he's kind of just relapsed into older patterns kind of like someone who's like you know what i tried to improve my life it may <laughs> have 
it may have helped it may have made some difference but it's too hard yeah there's there's I mean, an inertia there's could, an inertia there it could also just be that he saw an opportunity to try again and see if that old Russ is still in there somewhere. And if he can play like he did in 2016, you know, 2017. And I'm still wondering if he's possibly going to find out or realize that is that he can't. Right. And, and um, whether via Scott Brooks or Bradley Beal or whoever it's, you know, it's probably going to have to be one of those to um, convince him to adopt some of those patterns again that he had with the Rockets last spring. Well, I think, I mean, good luck. You know, I hope they can. I, and I also think part of what made Westbrook so fascinating when I first kind of fell in love with him right when he entered the league was he joined a team that already had Kevin Durant and at the time a, well, James Harden was on the team, yeah, but they played two seasons together in Oklahoma City. Part of what made Westbrook so fascinating, so engaging to me was I, I loved Kevin Durant, but he's sort of like the definition of steadiness. You're going to get 25 points a game from him. They're going to be efficient. You know how he's going to do it. It's amazing to watch. But Russell Westbrook was like this weird counterpart where – with this rhythm and precision of Durant, you had this out of control wild card that made the Thunder, this push and pull so fascinating to watch. It didn't always work the best, but it made them, when it did succeed, it was some of the most fascinating interplay that I've ever seen on a basketball court. It, was, it almost was like maybe a stretch of an analogy. <laughs> but one of my favorite jazz records is Money Jungle by Duke Ellington. And yeah, it's brilliant. But like you listen to it and it shouldn't work because Max Roach, Charles Mingus and Duke Ellington are all trying to like outdo each other. Like they sound like three soloists just hammering away instead of blending together at all. That was kind of what it was like to watch those Thunder teams. It often went off the rails when I think of the playoff game against the Nuggets, I think in 2010 or 2011, where Westbrook just shot them out of the game. Um, at the end but when it did work it was just transcendent that give and take that um, I I loved watching them play and I I had a lot and and I think part of it too was there was this kind of transgressive appeal in loving Westbrook because everyone knew Durant was great but it's easy to forget this now but there were a lot of maybe it's not easy to forget it but there were a lot of arguments about you know should the Thunder trade Westbrook would they be better with a more steady player alongside Durant so there was kind of like this loyalism that I had to like, no, keep Russ there. He makes them more exciting. He makes them better. This is awesome. And after the MVP season, it kind of got sad because there wasn't that counterpoint anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think this is maybe more about the reaction to Westbrook than his actual performance, but I think he's sort of the victim of like the way NBA fandom has changed and NBA analysis has changed, right? Like if Westbrook was in a different era, he would be, he wouldn't take any criticism almost, right? Just the energy that he plays with, the force that he plays with, the way he attacks his ability to dunk is sort of like the undeniableness of his athleticism. And, you know, no one would be asking questions about his efficiency if he played in a different era. But today, you know, fans almost, they want to think of themselves as a lot of them want to think of themselves as smarter than like maybe the casual fan who's just saying Russell Westbrook is good because he's putting up XX numbers or he's putting up a triple double. So there's a whole subsection of the fan that's like, no, actually look at these advanced statistics. And so Westbrook is a very easy target for that sort of analysis because, you know, his efficiency sort of dropped off and like has been continually dropping off for a while now, obviously outside of that MVP season. But, and so like, there's a huge subsection of the fans that are, are just harping on that. And I think it, it's really interesting to contrast him with someone like Jokic, right? Because Jokic is ex- almost the opposite, right? He's lumbering, yeah. he's mouth breathing. He doesn't look like he can do anything, but he's super good. He's super efficient. All the advanced numbers lo- love him. So you have like the people who, who don't like uh, Jokic and who are just like, you know, they sort of want him to fail because they want to be right about the fact that like, he's just not a good enough defender to matter in the playoffs. And then you've got the other people who are like, Jokic is amazing. Both he's fun. And he's also like doing things that impact winning. And the fact that he's like lumbering doesn't actually matter. So uh, they're, they're almost like foils. They're almost like opposites of each other and the way people react to them on the internet. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that makes sense. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Michael. No, I was going to say, Jalen, as you were talking about that, it occurred to me, you know, what a self-fulfilling prophecy um, advanced metrics are in a way, because in a prior era, it wouldn't just be that people wouldn't have the advanced stats to say, Russell Westbrook, what you're doing is inefficient. It would also be that other teams weren't trying to capitalize on what advanced metrics were making available to them. And he might just literally have been better in a way that would have been not as easy to combat because people wouldn't have had, you know, they wouldn't have had the evidence to show them you basically don't play like this. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, I, I really like the way you phrase that sort of the uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy of advanced metrics, because I was thinking about this in reference to Trey Young. Um, and like this, this isn't really about any individual writer, but I feel like they're uh, the thing in NBA media right now is just picking. We're all like picking X player over X player, right? We're picking John Morant over Trey Young, you know, who's going to be better. We're picking, I don't know, De'Aaron Fox over John Morant, whatever it is. Um, and I think that like, the, the advanced metrics are awesome but the thing is like the reality is what they tell us is that there's like five nba players that matter um like there's five <laughs> people that are gonna determine whether or not you have a chance to win a championship and then there's everyone else and like that's just the reality of the game when you when you dwindle it down to 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 that you know barring injuries and things like that so that, that makes it difficult. And I feel like I think about it specifically in the context of a player like Trey Young, who has, who's just, he's just short, he's short and he's skinny and he has limitations and there are effort concerns about his defense, which are valid. And until he answers those, you know, questions will be fair, but at the same time, we should be doing more to appreciate what he's accomplished, right? Trey Young is one of the best basketball players in the world. And he's managed to overcome those size deficiencies by playing the way he's playing to get to the NBA. And then now he's succeeding in the NBA. So it should be incumbent incumbent upon not only his organization, but I think people who are talking about him to say it's, it's, it's our responsibility to figure out like it's, it's Travis Schlenk's responsibility to put a team around him that maximizes his abilities and covers up his weaknesses and gives the team the best chance to win. And it's our responsibility to like talk about it within that context, right? Like we shouldn't just make everyone held to the standard of LeBron and Jordan, because then we have a situation where like nobody likes anybody, right? We have people like, you know, James Harden is maybe disliked for different reasons, but we have all these amazing players who half of the internet can't stand because they, they don't determine or change your championship bottom line. With, yeah, with, with, with Trey Young in particular, I think one thing that has driven me crazy is I have seen more clips of him stopping and having a defender run into him from behind to cause a foul <laughs> than I have of him throwing a ball off a backboard for an alley-oop to John Collins. Why, why are we fretting over the latter or over the former more than celebrating the latter? Like, I'm not a Hawks fan. If you are a Hawks fan, I get you having concern about his defense. But, like, I watch the NBA because I want to see world-class athletes do cool shit. <laughs> and Trey Young does a lot of that. And, like, not only is he just a great player to be an NBA player, he is one of, like, two players in the world with, like, Lillard and Curry who can just nail those logo threes with regularity he's a better passer than either one of those players I don't mean to put him on their their level yet at this point but it's like he can do stuff that no one else in the world can do yeah yeah maybe maybe focus on that (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and I mean I think he's he's also really unique and I think his game defies easy classification I almost think like we should move away from comparing him to to guys like Steph Curry just because their games play so different they all shoot the deep three but Trey Young is like I don't even know what the comparison is but he's much more in the mold of like a Steve Nash or a Chris Paul he wants the ball in his hands he does not want to give it up and run run off screens um you know Lloyd Pierce was on Zach Lowe's podcast and he made that pretty clear he was like he was like Trey Young is not Steph Curry um you know he he needs the ball in his hands he needs to be running pick and roll and that's what he wants to do he wants to dance he wants to change speeds he wants to run into you he's also extremely physical he's skinny but 
he's bumping into people. He's running into people. Drawing those fouls is not exactly easy, right? That's one of the things, like, one of the arguments for why Steph Curry can't run 15 pick and rolls a game is because he'll be worn down by the end of the season. But Trey Young is doing it. Trey Young is doing the thing that James Harden does by running into everyone and inviting contact. So I just think that, like, I don't know, there, there's much more nuanced and interesting ways to celebrate what people are actually capable of doing rather than focusing so much on what they're not. Yeah, I I do think there is, of course, a place for that sort of like criticism about like winning a title with a player, you know, and looking at their weaknesses. But I think, you know, considering the fact that the vast majority of people who, in theory, I assume, are reading basketball rating are doing so because they're fans and like the game, there should be just more pure celebration of it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, Michael, Can RJ you... Barrett taking twenty five shots a game be pure something to be purely celebratory? <laughs> I've I've been doing it. He's on my fantasy team, yeah. and it's pretty fun to watch the stats go up. In the limited times I've, be, I've gotten to see him on League Pass, it's fun when the shots are going in, and it's not so much when they're not. But hey, that's what it takes to sometimes get them to go in. Yeah, it was fun <laughs> last night or the night before, right? Like, I mean, he put up well, the last two nights. Lot. Yeah, he's he's but, put but, up around twenty-five the last two games. I, I was trying to think of other players that are, uh, you know, will always be on a non-championship team. R.J. Barrett might be one of those. Julius Randle on the Knicks as well is another. Are there other guys like that who you like to watch? Angelo Russell. Yeah, the, you know, that intensity, oh, that fun, that. flying all around, <laughs> you know, th- that you like, but are never going to be that winning player. Yeah, I mean, I do think D'Angelo Russell is a good is a good comp there. I mean, I um, think it's James Harden. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the You're real hot take things. here right yeah. now. I don't know. Maybe, you're, you're maybe right he'll. So far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll wind up in Denver or something. I don't know. I, this is me. This is look at me, me hoping again that James Harden will change his stripes and adjust his game in the playoffs or something. I don't hey, know. Now Nobody you know what it's changes. like to be a Russell Westbrook guy. <laughs> My goodness. It's like, I don't know. We're, he's going to do something. I'm just going to be yelling on this pod like a couple months from now. Watch. Um, Name the great player who made the change, who made the change that Harden isn't making or Westbrook isn't making. Who, who, who's done that? I mean, but this Will is Chamberlain the thing. for one season. <laughs> but this is the thing they don't even need to make the most drastic change lebron made the change lebron lost the finals in 2011 and then is, he yeah. got his he got his butt yeah. in the post he couldn't yeah. post up jj Barea in 2011 and then he got his butt in the post <laughs> obviously there were mental issues there but like you know he he changed his game he he was so hungry to win that he was willing to post up he was willing to take the punishment by playing the four he was willing to play like the defense that they structured which was insane and trapping they're running all over the place which required intense conditioning he did it like i mean right. i don't what know about, if it's if it's I mean, a good Bosch, thing Bosch was forced to sort of eat it and change his game on that team too for the time he was there uh, yeah but what about players who've always played right and may never win you know charles barkley is the great example of this i think he's somebody who he really played hard and he played in a way that that really should have turned into a championship at some point for him and it didn't and uh i think now of chris paul i think chris paul has been just a tremendous player since about 2006 and about dame too yeah dame too dame Dame doesn't quite play defense as well as Chris Paul. Um, you know, the, yeah, true. It's, 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 but he's also a more dynamic offensive play or a, a dynamic scorer, at least, you know? And so, you know, there, that's another efficient. good comparison. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. I mean, I feel like those are the guys you have to feel the worst for who just, you know, the people, everyone who kept running up against uh, Jordan, Stockton, Stockton and Malone, um, you know, Barkley, you name whatever the person was who could, who just couldn't get past that juggernaut. Yeah, and this uh, is Jimmy I, Butler with Hakeem got his LeBron right now. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, um, uh, Michael, did you have any last comments on Westbrook? And if not, well, jump you can jump us into the Kyrie conversation because I know that was something <laughs> that we wanted to talk about. I mean, with Westbrook, I, I think for me at this point, I, I still love him. I, I still love watching him play. I don't really have a lot of affection for him as a person. I don't know the guy, <laughs> but um, he, I think at this point, he still makes me feel as much as any other player in the league. But at this point, he's kind of 
a bummer, you know? Yeah. It, at this point, he, you know what you're getting. And I, I, he, he feels like a, a band or an author, you know, who's like, I've, I've read all their best known work and now I'm just listening to the deep cuts, hoping there's something good on these records. That reminds you of the stuff you love. Yeah, sometimes there is. <laughs> right. Sometimes there is. And I'm sure there will be nights this year when Russell Westbrook has like a 30-point triple-double, and it's astonishing. And it yeah. reminds me of the way I felt yep. <laughs> all yep. those years ago. <laughs> but I, I do want to say one last thing about Westbrook, too, is there's all this criticism about him as a player. And, you know, he couldn't win it. You know, he was too domineering. And that is fair. It's objectively true. But also – he averaged a triple-double for three years in a row, which no one else had done ever. He'll be one of the 50 best players in NBA history. And, like, regardless of whether he wins a title, that's still pretty crazy. He's played like no one else. He's been domineering and exciting and wonderful. And I will cherish that. And that's a legacy that I think any player could be happy with. So, like, I get the criticism. They're not wrong. But – and it goes back to what I was saying, you know, celebrate the other stuff too. Even yeah. as rough as his early season has been with the Wizards, he has not been their worst player. I mean, Troy Brown is playing really abysmally. I mean, I thought that he was someone who was going to be able to, you know, after what he did at the end of last season, I thought he was going to be like a, a key rotation piece for them. And how Mo Wagner has been playing? terrible. And what's up? He's only how much, 15, how, how much is he even game. playing? I keep seeing Jerome Robinson on the floor for some reason. Well, that's the thing. It's because he's been playing terribly. Wow. Um, and like, really, they just can't get shooting anywhere. And, you know, it's like, Westbrook is putting up these horrific shooting lines, but I'm like, who else is going to be taking the shots right now? Because, you know, Bradley Beal can't really take too many more. I mean, they're already <laughs> like in the mid twenties in, in terms of like they, shots taken, you know, they could give idea a couple shots. He's kind of efficient when he gets them, which only happens when Westbrook doesn't play. That's the only time he actually gets shots. So it is yeah. bleak though, that we're at the point where we're praising Westbrook because he's playing better than Troy Brown. <laughs> oh boy we well, didn't say he was playing better than ish smith though well <laughs> to be clear i wasn't praising him i was more trying to give him a pass on some of the you know some of the shot selection that he's had because they just have not had i mean like their roster i mean half those players wouldn't even be on other teams on the roster at all i mean I don't yeah. know. I don't even know yeah. half these names. And no, like that you know, back third and, would just wouldn't even would they would be G Leaguers on for other teams. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I was gonna say. I feel like Micah, you are um an example for us all of uh non-binary thinking and non-zero sum fanship being from Ohio and being a Steph Curry fan and also having an appreciation <laughs> for Russell Russell Westbrook because as a Steph Curry fan, I found myself constantly denigrating Westbrook's accomplishments. But like you said, like averaging a triple double is really hard to do. No one does that. And also like now that Lamella Ball is in the league he's stealing rebounds from everyone and it is a delight to me and it was not a delight when Westbrook was doing it so you know there's a bit of hypocrisy from me there but uh Michael Kimball uh we haven't heard enough from you tonight so lead us in our conversation about Kyrie and all that the <laughs> the media the media swirl around Kyrie entails yeah I mean uh, I, I I think Kyrie gets a really kind of bad knock in a lot of this stuff um and, and for the most part um because he says some things that we can wish he might not have said but he gets crucified when he does that and there are other players that have done those sorts of things and it doesn't quite happen so that's one of the i've always had a little sympathy for him in that um, I've always simply just liked his game I mean, to go back to our earlier conversation. I mean, he's a guy I just like to watch play. I don't care if he dribbles the whole 24 seconds. I will <laughs> Mike, watch Michael, it can I give you a little, time. can I give you a little fodder for this? There, sure. There's a really fascinating game update right now. So the nets are now up 31 to 11 against the jazz. Kyrie is seven for seven from the field. 
four for four from three-point range, uh, three rebounds, three assists, 18 points. My God. It's, I mean, first it's quarter. almost embarrassing to admit this, but I, it didn't really occur to me how great of a player he is until I had him on my fantasy team and I was looking at his box scores all the time and realizing how efficient he is any game he plays and how full that stat line is any time. And it, it started to point to sort of how underrated I, I think he is. And, and part of this is coming up because there's a great piece at The Root uh, Damon Young wrote it. It's called The Baffling Year-Long's Beef Between Kyrie Irving and the NBA Media Explained. And he gets into two points there. One, um, uh, the, the sort of main thing is that the media simply doesn't like his personality. Um, it goes along with him coming from Duke. Uh, here, I'm just parroting what the article says. Um, and that, that there's that dukeness that presents itself, forgive me for any duke people out there, the dukeness that presents itself as knowing more than it might. And that a lot of especially white journalists take great exception to that and is one of the reasons. The other side of it is um, that the Boston media hates him for his time uh, in Boston and that the LeBron media has some investment in Kyrie not getting credit. The less credit Kyrie gets, the more credit LeBron gets. And so I'm just sort of fascinated by this because if you just, if you look at his box score, it's incredible. If you look at his plus minus, if you look at, you know, any number of measures, he's a very successful basketball player, but he's just a joke now mostly like nobody even gets to the basketball part of it and you know i see situations where um I, i'm trying to remember what I, oh steph curry's um steph curry once questioned the moon landing <laughs> as fake and that doesn't get brought up too much and i'm thinking of dame who i adore as a player but hate as a covid denier in the, that doesn't get talked about because people love Dame. So there's there's a lot of com, conflicting things happening here around this person. It sort of fits in Jalen to some extent with our discussions of KD and his personality too. So it, it, it's a fascinating yeah. thing to me. And it also forgets, besides all of this, he does actually a lot of good in the world. Um, I'm remembering... In the last year, and I don't know if I have the numbers right, and I couldn't find it. Well, let's kick 250, it 250,000 meals for needy people in New York City. Yeah. I mean, Michael, you wrote about this exact thing. I did, yeah. I wrote an article for uh, Real GM last month after uh, he had said he wasn't going to speak to the media on media day. And obviously that ruffled a lot of feathers, a lot of people yeah. upset about it. And there's two, I think a lot of what you said, of course, the, the piece, at, uh, was it the root? Yeah. 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 That piece was good. It was a good sort of introductory uh, piece on the whole, on the whole kerfuffle between him and the media. But I think there's, I think there's two other things. Um, one of which I mentioned in my piece and one I'm just kind of saying here that I, I, I think also that, that, that are important to kind of consider. First, I think fans are going to take the media side more, not just because they're told to by the media or whoever. I think people are a little less pliable than that, or at least I like to believe so. But I think it kind of ties in with the fact that the average fan can imagine themselves as a journalist more than as a player. Yeah. So like when, when, a, when, a, when a beat writer gets miffed by a player, that seems to them in a way almost, even if they hate the media, which many do, they can still relate to that a little bit more easily, perhaps. Yeah. I, I, think, I, think, the, I think the other thing. Uh -huh. No, no, is go ahead. That, I think the other thing, too, is the NBA has, has I think we could all agree here, is it likes to present itself as like the liberal league, the, the conscientious sports league. And it really does a lot to kind of propagate that, that image with, with the social justice slogans on the back of the jerseys and on the court in the bubble. Um, it does a lot to kind of say, look, we're not like the NFL. We're not like the MLB. We're progressive. Right. But I think one thing about Kyrie is he doesn't seem to buy into that narrative 
that that fantasy that the NBA wants to sell. And a lot of players, such as LeBron, to go back to that dichotomy, are enabling it and perpetuating it. Yeah. Whereas Kyrie, he was like, I don't want to go back to the bubble. <laughs> I think it yeah. would be a distraction. And I think he was likely proven right. And yeah. I think that he won't let the league or the players who support the league and their own social justice initiatives to kind of pat themselves in the back. He's not going to allow them to be as self-congratulatory as they would like. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not saying this, that I agree with everything he says. There's some dumb, truly out there and frankly, problematic stuff he says, but he's been right on so much that um, I think that it, that it just used to write him off and to not engage. And I, I think that's frustrating. When he made that statement about the bubble, I, my first thought was he's so right. My second thought was they're going to kill him for this. Like, and yeah. they did. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's it's absolutely true. I mean, you bring this out at the end of your article that these athletes, NBA athletes or athletes in general, shouldn't be forced to choose between uh, fighting for social justice and playing in the NBA. Um, yeah. And obviously that's true of Kyrie. But I think it's obviously also true of someone like LeBron, who I think is obviously making serious efforts for social justice and for, um, you know, youth education and all these sorts of things. But I think there is there's a price to being LeBron, right? There's a price to being potentially the best player to ever play the game, which is such that like he certainly invested in that, which means it's going to be pretty hard to pass up an opportunity to win another championship just because it's being played in a bubble. Right. And and so I think like. I don't know. It just, it, it makes sense for LeBron to like, say, uh, no, I'd actually like to play, which is like a normal response. Anyone is free to want to play the game that they spent their entire life dedicated to or not, uh, uh, um, you know, pandemic or social justice reform, notwithstanding. Um, so I don't know. I, that, that was just kind of the thing that I was thinking of where like LeBron was just kind of saying, Hey, I want to win basketball. I want to win a championship. And somehow that got twisted into like Kyrie doesn't know what he's talking about and he's just messing things up and he's not even here. So what does it matter what he says? And he's unreliable and all this sorts of stuff. And yeah, I know I don't think there really should have been a value judgment in based on his opinion. On a lighter note, uh, Michael, you've been making band comparisons and I think Kyrie is maybe the Earl sweatshirt figure of the NBA <laughs> who is kind of like he, he as you say, he, he's not willing to let the NBA sort of, he's not willing to pretend that the NBA isn't sort of uh, full of it a bit or, you know, let them pat themselves on the back. Uh, but the reality is like you kind of have to deal with the BS to be a part of institutions and systems in, in this world. So. Um, yeah, it seems like a struggle for Kyrie at sometimes. Yeah, it's like, how do you juggle these two passions that often seem diametrically opposed? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, anything else? Did anyone want to mention anything else um, on the pod? As I mentioned in the, the opening, uh, Steph Curry scored 62 points uh, against the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, he set a career high. Uh, he was eight of 16 from three. Uh, I think it was 18 of 30 uh, from the field and 18 of 19 uh, from the free throw line. So a James Harden-esque uh, performance in terms of getting to the free throw line. Uh, any thoughts on that? It ruled. <laughs> it, it was it was so much fun. I mean, I tweeted last night that Steph Curry leads the league in times making me giggle so far this year with delight. And there's, of course, the absurdity of the deep threes that he hits covered legs splaying out after he lets the ball go. <laughs> um, but what's it's really interesting this year to to see him take on a bigger responsibility without Clay Thompson, without Durant with Draymond only intermittently available um, because if you watch those highlights from the 62 point game and from last night when he scored I forget how many but 30 something I believe or high 20s yeah, yeah he scored 30 last night yeah um, just the variety of ways he's doing it because without having these escape valves no one is counting no one <laughs> should be expecting Andrew Wiggins to either create for anybody else or be sort of like a safety valve if things are in trouble for Curry. So he's having to carry all this weight himself. So you see him 
expanding, not necessarily expanding his game, because it's like he was never able to do these things, but he's forced to do things that he hasn't had to do. These drives, the, the variety of the finishes that he's busting out and um, the ways he's creating his own shot more and more because they don't have the playmakers or the IQ at this point due to the shortened training camp to run him off ball as much. Um, I'm not sure how sustainable it is over the course of a 70-something game season. Um, not that I don't think Curry's incapable of recreating. I mean, he can't score 62 every night, I mean, but I just mean that and from a pure physical standpoint, being able to carry that much of a burden. But, I mean, I am excited to watch him try. <laughs> you know, when, last oh. – I was going to say yeah, last yeah. week yeah. I, I mentioned that Draymond coming back could have some system effects as in he could just make everybody else around him better. Interestingly, that 62 point game night, Draymond had the highest plus minus on the team. And, um, and you called that last week, Kyle, yeah. on the pod, you said when he comes back, the system's going to change. And it not only unlocked that, it unlocked Kelly Oubre. He looks like a decent player again. Well, that was the thing I was going to say is last night's game, um, you know, Wiggins goes for 16 on 7 of 15 shooting. Uh, Ubre goes for 18 on 6 of 13 shooting. Wiseman goes for 10, 5 of 9 shooting. Curry, 9 of 18 shooting for 30 points. Pascal, 6 of 10 for 14 points. Kevon Looney, 5 of 6 for 11 points. You know, they've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, because apparently – Mulder also was in double figures, seven players in double figures, you know, after getting absolutely blown out and seeming like they didn't have an NBA offense. Um, this is notable. Yeah. Also, I mean, he was galloping like he was riding a horse yesterday. So that was cool. <laughs> I, I only saw that on Twitter. Can someone explain the context of that? Um, he was initiating the offense and the players were not moving the way he wanted them to. Um, I thought cause, cause that, I from, that was about it from the Twitter image. I thought that he was trying to get somebody, somebody was crossing over through the lane and I, I thought that he was trying to give them a lob, but I, I couldn't really tell. No. Yeah. He was just trying to get more movement in the offense. Things were stalled out. Like there's still like a delay between when Steph and Draymond recognize an opening and when the other players on the roster recognize an opening. But I mean, we were talking about just sort of appreciating players and uh, the subtle nuances of their games. And I think one of the reasons that I like Steph Curry, I'm sure one of the reasons why I like all of my favorite players is because I can most relate to them. They're sort of them being undersized and slept on and doubted in these different ways. Um, you know, my favorite players before Curry, I've said this before in the pod were Iverson and Dwayne Wade um, and, you know, people who are generally undersized for their position, use their quickness and toughness to, to overcome that. But like in these early games, and, and this, this not only applies to like the early struggles Curry has had this season, but also just the fact that he plays a high variance game. So we've talked about this before. He His grasp on greatness is at least in theory less secure than someone like LeBron, who's kind of like been in control and had the top spot of best player in the league for who knows how long now. Um, and just by his sheer size and physicality is, is can hang on to it longer. Whereas Steph Curry, as Steve Kerr pointed out, has to dominate by shooting 30 footers uh, by having amazing touch around the rim, you know, in his 2015, 16 season, I think he was shooting an even higher percentage than LeBron in the rim at the rim. And he was shooting like 60 plus percent around the rim, you know, so it's just, things that shouldn't be happening, but the result of that sort of maybe more tenuous grasp on greatness and that high variance game means there that there are these moments where he struggles and early in the season, you could see him yelling at himself. You could see him like closing his eyes and replaying the play in his head after timeouts. You could see him kind of like rubbing his head. And I don't know, I find all that also fascinating and interesting and sort of appealing uh, to see a player just sort of going through it. Like, you know, like anyone would, who's trying to get out of a slump. Um, you know, you would see him make a three and he'd kind of be jumping up and down trying to like get it to go in the rim. There's a there's a childish aspect to Steph Curry's game that I think appeals to me. I, I tweeted this that he plays basketball like a sugar drunk child. Um, and 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 that means he runs around like crazy and gets uh, these relocation threes. But it also means he's going to like, you know, turn the ball over tragically like a number of times a game but he also is going to dribble the ball off his foot pick it up and throw it at the rim and it's going to go in so it just 
I don't know. There, there's a lot of joy there for me. And and I think that it that it almost does make it more exciting to watch him too because it's kind of like you don't know if tonight's gonna be one of those nights. Yeah. I the 2015-2016 iteration of the Warriors, Steph's unanimous MVP year. That's my favorite NBA team to watch that I ever seen. Every every single game they played was like appointment viewing for me. Because yep. it was just like you never knew what was gonna happen. They get down deep and it's like, okay, how are they gonna pull this out? And 73 times out of 82, they did. Yep. And just it feels it wasn't sustainable. And that's part of what made it so I don't mean to sound like some like hackneyed poet talking about how like the beauty of life is that it ends or whatever. <laughs> but like, there was something just so cool about just feeling like I'm never going to see anything like this ever again. And not in like a macro sense, like, oh, we're never going to see a player like LeBron again. No, we're never going to see a player do this specific thing ever again. It, it was just astonishing, and it, it made me feel like a kid. Yeah, <laughs> I, and the, I think the thing that people underrate was that they won the championship, but they literally suffered through an offseason of people being like, oh, whatever, they didn't play anyone, the Cavs were injured, yada, yada, yada. So they were motivated. So they, they, they had reached kind of like a pinnacle of like uh, team intelligence and cohesion and Steph Curry at the peak of his powers and Draymond maybe at the peak of his powers. And so it was just like you're saying, like a lead was never safe. They, they, you know, Danny, uh, Danny LaRue talks about feedback loops. Well, you were just getting killed in their feedback loops. They were turning you over and they were getting out and shooting threes. And, and before you knew it, you were down 20 after being up 10. So, I mean, I don't know. It was just, it was a crazy experience. They were like 73 and nine, but like having watched all those games, they should have been like 65 and 17. And I don't, and that's still great. And I don't even mean that as a knock. I just mean they won so many games. They shouldn't have through pure pluck and just. I mean, they were insane in the clutch that year. They were insane in the clutch. Like it was like the, one of the last games of the season. And Steph was like, he needed to hit his last couple shots to break the three point record. And he did it. And it was just, it was such a microcosm of everything. They, they just, they never failed to answer the bell when, when, when they needed to that season up until they got to the finals. Yeah. I've never seen a team that felt so touched by destiny until they weren't. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's sports. It was, that is sports. It, it was magical. It, it feels like a fever dream I had. <laughs> yeah, the, I've I've tweeted this that it's my drug. Like I'm constant. Like every time I turn on Steph Curry, I'm like, is is it going to be as strong as the first time I took it? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but anyways, uh, enough yeah, of man. us <laughs> ranting about Steph Curry. Yeah, that that feeling that you have, I have the reverse of it. I just have the trauma of like Clay Game Six against the Thunder, and uh, and just going from this like cautious, like near elation that somebody was going to beat them, and then Clay going absolutely berserk, and and then just knowing and knowing that there was no shot in Game Seven. It was like just that feeling that, oh, this is over. (laughs) And like if you were on the reverse side of the Warriors, as you know, someone rooting for LeBron was all year, there was this this feeling of of. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of like destiny that you're talking about, except for just dread and doom, you know, and uh I almost wish I could have enjoyed the um, the finals a little bit more, but um, you know the way the the Cavs had to win that was to really just slow everything down, and it um, you know it became it felt as as sort of plotting as the game needed to be for the Cavs to pull that out. I oh. I need the Criterion Collection to release a special box set just commemorating <laughs> that season. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, before we get out of here, anything you want to say on the Philadelphia 76ers who have not traded for James Harden yet? Uh, ben Simmons had a triple double the other night. Uh, they took it to the Hornets last night. Uh, LaMelo Ball had a few nice stretches, but the Sixers defense just kind of uh took them apart. Uh, Talk about the other Curry. Yeah, yeah, they should not trade Seth Curry, he's shooting better than his brother. <laughs> 
it's almost like having shooters helps <laughs> really right they yeah. figured it out yeah yeah daryl Morey came in and was like so you know uh the goal is to put the ball in the hoop and uh three is more than two and they're like wow you know <laughs> this is what we pay you the big bucks for like i don't know how did they destroy their team construction so bad over the years what's that's, that's most that's surprising shooting. sorry go ahead micah what is most surprising to me is I wrote a piece over the offseason after they lost about how little flexibility it seemed they had. And it that seemed true. <laughs> Yet they somehow managed to move Horford and get Curry and Green. And I, I, I've, I've been I've been very surprised what they were able to do with with so little wiggle room. And uh, they've been fun to watch. I, I love watching Ben Simmons. I love watching Joel Embiid. And they're finally in an environment or have players around them that makes watching them actually enjoyable instead of just depressing. So that's great. I'm happy about it. And Ben Simmons hit a three. What? <laughs> um, I, I've been impressed just I, watching their half-court offense, which was torture last year. Um, yeah. And it's infinitely better this year, uh, sort of surprisingly so, given that they hadn't really changed that much besides Seth Curry and Danny Green. But clearly that was the thing that that unlocked this. And um, I, I like a couple of the young players coming up with the Sixers too. Maxie, I think, could be that backup point guard that I don't think Shake Milton's ever going to be. Maxie yeah, I... is really quick, if nothing else. <laughs> I was higher on shake entering the season than I am now that we're into the season. <laughs> it's easy to feel the optimism, but as soon as you watch him for a while, it, it pretty quickly dissipates. There was that one. Michael, is this a fantasy pickup um, reaction? Because <laughs> I did notice you picked him up in one of the, those leagues and that probably, you know. You watch them a little I bit. I mean, it makes it, it, it definitely makes it really clear. If you're, if you're paying attention to that stat line every game, it makes it clear how empty his game is. What I remember was I remember he had that 39 point game on national TV last year in, in March. I forget who it was against, but I remember just watching that being like, oh, they finally, this, this is the, this is the new off the bench shooting guard. It, and I, I think I may have made too much of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know why it hasn't come together. He's He was playing really well um, in the preseason. Um, and he's a big guard. We talked about this on the pod. He's, I think, 6'5". Uh, he can handle it a little bit. He has shot the ball pretty well in his uh, NBA career. So, yeah, I'm not really sure why it hasn't come together. Maybe he's just now that they do have more spacing and they have these more I don't know if I don't know how much the the offense has actually changed. Obviously, they're running more pick and rolls, but I, I don't really right. know. I don't have the numbers on like how many touches he's getting or how much the ball's moving or things like that. But maybe it's just some kind of adjustment that he's uh, struggling to make right now. Yeah, I I am happy to see Ben Simmons just thriving a bit again because um, it, it seems like in this environment he can do what he's best at. You know, I don't care if he can shoot a three. I just want to see him run an offense, make cool passes drive and make cool shots near the basket and for that to be enough is very cool to see yeah i mean i think everyone knows this by now anyone who's like really paying attention to the game but the issue with ben simmons is not that he doesn't shoot the three the issue is that he doesn't shoot like 64 percent from uh the paint around the basket if he did that i think there would be uh, a lot less hand-wringing about his shooting because you know like he'd just be scoring so efficiently inside uh, the paint that it wouldn't really matter but like he kind of finishes too softly sometimes and tries to go for these finesse finishes with these euro steps and just instead of just powering through guys so if he's making that adjustment then i think there are good things in the offing for him mm, that's fair all right. Um, I think that's all we have for today. So uh, we are turning off the Phantom Power. Cheers.